Angela Eastman is a very cool person. I truly don't know how to say it any other way. She lives a life that many of us dream of, or at least one that I do, connected to nature, to craft, to teaching, and creative practice. As soon as I encountered Angela's work, I knew I was going to be a fan, and I was right. This is a conversation about many of my favorite topics, the distinction of art versus craft, learning to find our role as creative practitioners in natural systems, the importance of care in our artistic practice, why we need good teachers across all fields. It is also a conversation that challenges the things we assume are true, asking us to look at alternate pathways to challenges such as invasive species, increasing material consumption, and the industrialization of fields we have traditionally labeled as craft. It is a conversation that asks you to pay attention to the world around you and let the path take you where it may. And I could not have left more inspired and energized. Angela Eastman is an artist and teacher from Hillsboro, North Carolina. She holds an MFA in sculpture from Cranbrook Academy of Art and completed the core fellowship program at Penland School of Crafts. She has participated in numerous residencies, including at Haystack Mountain School of Crafts, the Hambridge Center for Creative Arts, Mass MoCA, Vermont Studio Center, Sitka Center for Art and Ecology, and Sim and Ness residencies in Iceland. Angela is currently the artist in residence at the John C. Campbell Folk School in Brasstown, North Carolina, and is focusing on basket weaving with invasive vines. In addition to sculptural work, Angela creates jewelry, baskets, metalwork, and ceramics through her design business, Flag Mountain Studio. Angela also teaches art workshops to adults and youth. She is an advocate for craft education as a vital component of understanding the material world we live in. Art is one of the many, though I posit our best, ways to understand that world. I find myself now looking closer and looking deeper, and I hope this conversation challenges you to do the same. but yeah. nobody yeah. can ever figure it out. So Angela, it's super <laughs> nice to meet you. I know you've been in communication mostly with Vic, but um, I was just stalking all of your work this morning and it sounds amazing. I'm so excited to get into this conversation. Likewise. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. Thank you for being here. Um, I, I'm a folklorist and I, I work with a lot of people who study craft and weaving and I actually just wrapped up a whole unit with my students um, about material culture and about kind of the art of craft. So I'm really, really interested in the many, many things that you do as an artist and person in the world and all of the things that you're creating. I think I would love to start because I was reading a little bit of your bio on your site. Um, And if you could just tell us a little bit about the projects that you do, but also your approach to what craft is and how you define that. Mm. Yeah, so... um... My work is kind of meandering always between a lot of different craft mediums. Um, I kind of have always had a hard time choosing just one to, uh, to work with. Um, and so I, I tend to work with materials that um, I'm able to really grasp and manipulate with my hands. I have a very like tactile relationship to um uh, to materiality. So even if I'm working with like steel, you know, I do some blacksmithing and I'm, uh, uh, so I'm, I'm forging it. I can't actually touch it with my hands cause it's 2000 degrees, but, um, but I still have a very, like, um, I, I still do some of the manipulation process with my, with my hands actually. Um, so I think craft to me is, um, uh, really, deeply engaging with that relationship with the hand. Um, 
and uh, and allowing the hand to um, to be like the, the thinking designing part of the art making process and um, I mean I guess that sounds kind of uh, yeah very kind of like woo woo but um, but I think that there that uh, that like um, non mental relationship is like kind of inherent to me in um, in craftsmanship and in uh, having this relationship that is very uh, felt and. Um, I mean, I think craft like really feels like it's always like connecting me to history as well and to the ways that people throughout, um, um, you know, throughout like humans relationship with materiality have been like finding ways to manipulate and, um, and create vessels and, uh, you know, the things that we need to survive and, um, vessels and tools and, um, and clothing and all the things. Um, so I think a lot about um, how the work that I'm doing um, and the processes that I'm using, um, the you know the techniques that have been kind of like developed over millennia to create something. I think a lot about that history and how um, what I may be doing, whether it's like weaving a basket or manipulating metal, um, how like those processes have been developed over many, many, many. Um, hundreds of years of humans interacting with materials. Um, and I think that's kind of like a core element of, of craft is, um, is that like understanding of my place as an artist in this like long lineage of other, um, of other humans. That was so beautifully said. I was actually going to ask you to elaborate on this quote from your site, which I love, and, and you kind of answered this, but you said, at the heart of all of my work is a delight in materiality and a conviction that sharing the process of craft creates meaningful connections to histories of labor and place. As someone who's working so deeply in like place-based folklore, I, I just love everything you're talking about with all of this and the idea that craft is not something that is not useful in a modern world, which is, I think, most people's perception of it, but a way to connect with history and also be continually making new things and building connections. And we often, or stereotypically, there's often an approach that craft is like one artisan kind of sitting behind their pottery wheel, making something or one weaver. And to me, so much of the role and importance that craft plays is exactly as you're saying, connecting us to these histories, but also connecting us to one another. I don't know if you want to elaborate on that a little more, mm-hmm. bit more with kind of the piece of labor lore and labor history in there, because I find that really, really interesting. Um, and we're also able mm-hmm. to shift this now into a little bit of your own work and your own relationship to craft and the work that you do um, with Flag Mountain, which I for sure want to talk about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, um, like you say, like craft often is is um, kind of viewed as like a something that people take up as a hobby or, you know, something that you do like in addition to your more serious uh, career (laughs) um and I always I've all I've never really understood that because I feel like viewing craft as something that's non-essential um craft and art as things that are and we can talk about like the kind of weird distinction between the two but um uh yeah viewing those as non-essential is only makes sense in a like very capitalist view of the world where things have to be um it have to have like a, a like extremely practical uh, use in order to be viewed as essential and as necessary. Um, And, uh, you know, I've seen in my classes so often um, 
the the necessity of making things with our hands and um, seeing people who uh, yeah who do maybe more kind of like uh, societally essential work, but um, who need in their own um, like for their own well-being to be making things with their hands. Um, it's just so clearly calming and connecting to um, some kind of like deeper sense of, of being human, I think, to be um, working with our hands. And um, yeah, I, I'm a firm believer that that is like absolutely essential to every person's well-being is being able to um, to have the opportunity to, to make things with our hands and and have that uh, experience of connecting with other people while making and connecting with this like lineage of, of other makers um, throughout history. So, so yeah, I, I agree. It's really um, super important, super, super critical. And now maybe even more than ever, I feel like with like, um, you know, there's so many wonderful things that technology um uh, enables in our lives and uh, can make our lives much easier in a lot of ways. But um, but the move away from people making things with their hands, I think, is um, uh, it, yeah, is moving towards a like less human world. I feel like so. I think it's really important, and I think a lot of people are really um, responding to this uh, to to that and feel the need to be working with their hands. It definitely seems like coming out of the pandemic specifically, this move of wanting to go away from technology and return to work with your hands. It's the running joke that everyone started taking pottery classes coming out of it. And there was kind of this explosion in that. And, you know, I, I lived in Durham for the last little bit and Durham's got a big metalworking scene and, and lots of things with forging that are happening, which I for sure want to talk about. But I want to dial back a little bit to what you were talking about of the distinction between art and craft, because I'm very interested in this concept. I've been giving lectures about it for the last three weeks, I feel like, to my students. And there's mm. um, definitely an idea that people have that art is for the function of beauty and enjoyment and craft is about usefulness and necessity. So you make a cup because you need a vessel to drink water out of, right? And that's craft. But if you're making like a ceremonial goblet, that's art. Um, this is all again, very stereotypical, but I had a long conversation with some of my students. They went to a museum, they had to pick different cups and write about them. And we, we got into a whole debate about the idea of art versus craft. And what kept coming out of it is that art is what craft has become now that we no longer need to make our own mugs because of processes of consumption and material culture that we can go and buy a mug at Target. So now if you're crafting something yourself, you're doing it as an object of art and not as an object of function. I think it's a strange binary to draw this line between art and craft. And I would love to hear your thoughts on it because I can't quite wrap my head around the idea that things can't be both, right? They can be both useful and beautiful. Um, and it is very, very interesting in, in kind of the world of creative production and material culture that they get so defined down these lines. We see at folklore festivals, you know, craft is something that people want to come and they want to see a woman quilting who's been doing it for 80 years and it's taken seriously and also not seriously in the same way that art is so i would love to hear your thoughts on unpacking that a little bit more or how you think about art versus craft because it is an ongoing debate in this world i think mm -hmm. yeah it's so interesting i mean it's always felt like so unnecessary to me to to draw any like dividing line and in my own work i you know struggled for a while to kind of like 
um, figure out where I fell in um, in that binary. Um, and you know, I spent a, a couple of years at Pinland School of Craft and was um, kind of more in the craft world in my um, in my twenties. And then I went to grad school and um, got my MFA and was very much you know, I went like went and got an MFA and started making like performance art because that's what you do when you go to grad school. Um, so I definitely have kind of like bounced back and forth or like woven in and out of the uh, the the different communities um, of art and craft because that's kind of what they are is like communities. I think like more than it being a definitive um, like based on the object i think it's more based on like where people put themselves um in terms of how how they're speaking about their work how they're putting it out there in the world um and i mean i can't help but think also just about the um the different ways that those communities interact with the economy and how um you know if you label something as art if you sell it in an art market you're going to make four times as much money as you would if you sell it in a craft market, in a craft space. Um, you know, that's the generalization, but like largely speaking, that's, um, that kind of holds true. So I think that, um, and I think part of why that is, is that uh, as uh, craftsmanship and like the understanding of how things um, were made, how uh, like a cup uh, is made, as those, um, as that, like a, there's a general, as the general understanding of those processes um, and appreciation of craftsmanship got outsourced and became invisibilized because things are, uh, the things that we use every day are being made very far away, um, then there's less of an appreciation for uh, the, you know, the high technical skill that goes into um, making, you know, a basket that you buy at Target for. Uh, for ten dollars, um, because I'm a basket maker, I know that every basket is handmade. There's no basket making machines. So the person who made that basket was an incredibly skilled artisan who happens to be working, you know, at a factory in the Philippines or something. And um, it's a little bit of a digression, but I think that the, uh, yeah, that the way that craft kind of has this. Um, uh, is connected to the market in uh, at kind of like a lower tier than art is. Um, it does kind of keep our blinders on to like the realities of um, globalized trade, and um, and I think that there's like a lot of uh, political history to that. So I think it's a it's a more like political question than um, than we often like go into. Um, but like in my in terms of my own work and where uh, where I kind of like perceive of myself, uh, I I really don't um, make a, a clear distinction. I kind of like to be able to like move between both worlds and um, yeah show up at more kind of art centered residencies and have conceptual conversations with people um, and also you know go to super folky um, places as well where you can just kind of talk about like material and technique and um and kind of leave the theory behind a little bit so um yeah for me i i feel like there's not a um uh not an important distinction but i think it's important to kind of understand the 
uh, the context in which like that distinction came to be. It doesn't feel like a digression at all. And I actually want to kind of continue down this political thread a little bit. We've been joking that this is quote unquote season three of Good Folk of the podcast. Um, we don't really define it by seasons, but if we went off of numbers, that's where we'd be. And unintentionally, this season has really taken on a bit of a thread of arts and activism and how so many artists are also serving as activists in their own right and doing things to kind of work with new communities and train new artists and raise awareness and really diversify a lot of these spaces, um, but also share messages and, and weave those, I mean, for lack of a better word, really weave those political threads into what they do. So I would love to dive down that hole a little bit more um, and thinking about kind of the way in which this conversation about art versus craft is also deeply rooted in, in stereotypes and in globalization and kind of capitalist practice. Um, there's a huge thing that I feel like I see a lot of in the world of folklore studies with craft being something that has a lot of regional stereotypes and regional associations, often specifically with kind of rural or Appalachian cultures. And the way we think about that in this podcast as well, that, you know, we're, we're kind of bringing together and empowering Southern artists, but so much of the work we're also doing is trying to shift a little bit of how we view the term folk and think about, you know, what is an urban artisan look like, as opposed to, like we mentioned before, the woman who's quilting up in the mountains and this idea that folklore preserves that because we see it as important that, wow, we've come, the Smithsonian funded person up to the mountains, we found someone who knows how to do something that we don't know how to do. And now we're going to put all this money into that. Not that that's an entirely bad thing, but it also, I think, paints a portrait and a picture of kind of artisan or craft work as things that are passed down traditionally and not something that like a young person living in downtown Raleigh is going to go and get involved in and pick up. Um, and I know you you teach a lot of workshops and you have created a lot of these spaces. And I, Vic and I were just saying, we're like, we've got to get on one of your metalsmithing classes. Like these are incredible. And the work that you're yeah. now kind of doing even within those worlds. So I would love to just, yeah, dive down that kind of political and activist hole a little bit more. Um, and if you want to shift into talking about some of the work that you do as a workshop leader and instructor and, and as a craftsperson and artist. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I... Uh, I, I kind of just follow the, the medium. Um, and I, I think, uh, in the past couple of years, as I've started to teach more workshop, I've workshops, I've, I've just kind of, um, uh, been responding to the, uh, to what people seem to be interested in learning, um, while also kind of like uh, just opening up um, some of my own practices to, um, uh, to yeah, I've been teaching the things that I'm already kind of doing. Um, I mean, something that is um, at kind of at the intersection of where my um, more political or kind of like theoretical like art practice, like growing out of the, you know, the work that I was doing in grad school um, and then bringing it kind of more into my um, my current life as a, um, as a self-supporting artist and teacher and, um, a grower. I've been involved in agriculture since I moved back down to North Carolina and that's kind of been an important element that's kind of, um, led me into some of the workshops that I'm teaching now. So, um, so I've been focusing recently on working with invasive species, um, and uh, leading weaving workshops where we go and harvest uh, kudzu and wisteria and bittersweet and other um, invasive species like that, and then um, weave baskets with it. 
And um, these are always really fun, interesting workshops where people are kind of um, encouraged to uh, challenge their pre-existing um, understandings of invasive species and ecological responsibility and um, and think about weaving, uh, think about how those species are kind of our current neighbors and are um, and have honestly kind of a lot to teach us in terms of uh, um, climate resiliency and growing in um, in these kind of like liminal spaces. You know, you often see uh, these species kind of crop up in um, in previously disturbed areas. So. Um, along the sides of highways and kind of like abandoned lots like that's in, in places where humans have come in and started to develop and then um, and then kind of uh, there, there was a previously um, you know uh, rich uh, ecosystem there and then it's been disturbed and now these species are kind of the first to to um, uh, to be opportunists and kind of jump in and start growing there um, and they're really vilified, and you know there is a lot of sadness in the loss of biodiversity. Um, and when you look at a, the side of a highway, and all you see is this like wall of green um, that's one plant, kudzu, and it's um, you know there previously was a, a whole forest of uh, diverse species. Like there is a lot of sadness there in um, uh, in seeing the uh, the ways that our like development practices have led to that loss of biodiversity but at the same time these plants like are kind of incredible growers and are like very useful to humans and many of them have long uh relationships with humans um kudzu has been used for uh thousands of years in japan is both uh textile fiber and also for culinary and medicinal purposes um so having the opportunity to kind of go into the kudzu jungle with people and pull up vines um, and talk about that, uh, about like what ecological responsibility looks like. Um, and we're not like eradicating the vines in these like very small kind of like excursions into the kudzu, but we are having this conversation about like the reality of our um, environment um, and about what, um, you know, nature is always changing, always evolving. So the idea of kind of a, a native and a non-native species, like where that line gets drawn, um, it's an interesting question to kind of, um, yeah, to, to look into uh, what the narrative around invasive species is. Um, and then weaving a vessel from them allows people to... Um, you know, create this very useful thing that comes out of this, uh, this kind of vilified plant. So um, those have been really wonderful experiences and also uh, really nice to be able to kind of partner with landowners and offer, um, uh, offer this experience of pulling out something that is not useful to them. Um, and I'd love to do more of that to, uh, to partner with landowners and also like environmental organizations to do invasive spe species cleanup and things like that. Um, so that's kind of one example of a, a teaching experience where I'm able to kind of uh, bring a little of more kind of theoretical or I wouldn't really call myself an activist, but, um, but more kind of like um, a 
a political like alignment, I guess. Um, so, uh, and then the, my other workshops are um, really um, often just for the love of making, I would say, is kind of where, uh, where I come to them from. And uh, it's really important for me to be able to create spaces where people can feel supported in, in exploring new things and making, um, you know, things of beauty and things of, of use. And I, I have a lot of admiration for my students. I feel like it's really can be so hard as an adult to, um, to try something new and the fact that they're just showing up and, and trying to, um, learn a new thing is, um, is kind of like constantly inspiring to me. I think the work you're doing with invasive species and all of this, but specifically that sounds incredible. So I am what I call an environmental folklorist and my work has all been um, in the coast of South Carolina looking at kind of changes in biodiversity and how different natural processes are adopting resilient strategies and how humans can then learn from that. So specifically how if politicians aren't talking about climate change, the people who are artists and how are we thinking about ourselves, not in separation from the landscape, but able to shift and adapt. I was interviewing a botanist this summer who was also talking a lot about invasive species, but also different plants growing different kinds of resilience and how we can then reflect that in kind of creative practice and in our art. So me personally, I'm, I'm so obsessed with this concept and this idea. And I'm like, I need to sign up for that immediately. But <laughs> I would love to hear more about kind of the work that you do both with farming, because I find there's so many artists who also <laughs> work as farmers and, and have these deep relationships to land. And I don't think that's an accident. Oftentimes, I think there is a draw to make sense of the world in very physical ways, which lead so many of us to this work. And I think that's a really incredible thing that you do that I would love to hear more about. But within that, I'm also interested in your own relationship to place and landscape that you're working with these, you know, you're working with your hands, you're working with nature, you're working with the dirt, but what do place and home kind of mean in your work and in your practice? And, and how do you think about that with the work you do now in North Carolina um, and the work you've done before this? Yeah. Um, so I moved back to North Carolina in 2020, um, kind of right at the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, and I had been living in Detroit prior to that, which is where I, I got my master's there and then stayed in Detroit for a couple of years. So um, moving back to rural North Carolina was um, definitely a, a shift in, you know, in just in the geography that I was surrounded by um, all the time. And um I moved back because my uh, father was very sick uh, with cancer and he passed away in the summer of 2020. Um, so, you know, the pandemic was going on. It was like a, a, um, a challenging time to be moving anywhere, um, challenging circumstances. And that's when I uh, started working at a farm uh, that was near where my mom lived. Um, and so the, you know, uh, the process of, of learning about farming um, and of like getting back into basket weaving because that's when I uh, simultaneously started working with um, plants that I found um, growing nearby. So I, I kind of had learned how to basket weave uh, years before. And then at that time I, when I started farming, I also started weaving um, vessels um, and it was all very much linked to my own process of healing and um, 
and kind of trying to find a, a way to root in and, and settle in back where um, I had grown up. And I never really thought that I would move back to North Carolina. And, um, you know, I like left after high school and moved to Colorado and then moved all around. And Vic and I both did the exact same thing and oh, both really? also moved back in 2020. So. Wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It's a common thread on this podcast for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, um, it never really felt like home to me when I was, I, so my family um, is from the West coast. Originally I was born in Oregon and then I moved to North Carolina when I was 10 um, and went to middle school and high school here. Um, and was like, get me back to the West Coast. I'm like, <laughs> not from here. Um, it's funny how as a kid, you can have these very like certain ideas of, of where you belong. Um, and I did not think I belonged in the South. Um, so moving back here um, a, a few years ago and starting to work on the land is really um, uh, a a big shift in terms of considering the possibility of this place being home. Um, and I think like, uh, it was so necessary for me to be having that relationship with like the land itself and with getting to know these different species of plants that I was working with to, to understand their, uh, their weaving capabilities. Um, I was kind of just out there like, rooting around in my mom's garden and <laughs> um, pulling up vines and, and starting to understand, uh, to like develop a, an actual like physical relationship with um, this place. Um, and I think that uh, that's the only way we really know home. Or for me, it's so important to, uh, to, know, a, to know a place that you call home through like a close neighborly relationship with the plants and animals that are, um, that are there. Um, so it's, it's been really, I would say that the process of like, um, my work kind of shifting more towards natural materials and towards, um, fiber has been, uh, largely because of this kind of, um, seeking a sense of home and a sense of, grounding myself and my art practice in the physical land and in the plants that were growing there um, in Orange County, North Carolina. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's a, like a very um, personal relationship that I feel like uh, I, I have the sense that it can just become more and more like hyper-local um, in terms of getting to know like one very, very specific piece of land um, and that's kind of my uh, goal and, and hopefully um, something that's going to manifest in the next couple of years is being able to purchase a, a piece of land and really um, root down even more into, into that sense of home and place. Um, and, you know, the, that kind of commitment to a particular um, very hyper-local environment, I think, is is also like so critical and it's so like aligned with um, uh, with the sense of craft and history that we were talking about earlier. So um, it feels like that's that's the next step for sure. You are completely speaking my dream, which is I'm also in Orange County actually. And the, the long-term goal is I'm like, I want to buy land and root down in Orange County. I'm thinking so much about 
the way you're describing a relationship to home and place and also being a relationship to the land and knowing the land. And it feels so relevant for me. Um, my kind of life metaphor has always been with pine trees and with this fascination and obsession with pine trees. And so when I moved back to North Carolina, that was how I like approached my whole worldview. And I got very much into the lore of like loblolly and long leaves. Um, as a climate person now, I'm looking at like loblolly pine trees becoming the symbol of climate resilience in, in their kind of fight against saltwater and the rising salt marsh. But in my own practice, the story of the lob or the longleaf pine tree, which I actually went and got tattooed on my body after this, but it is a whole thing about how longleaf pine trees have roots so deep that they can spin out in circles like a hundred feet wide in a storm, right? Even though they're super, super strong and skinny and thinking about mm. how that can serve as a metaphor for creative practice, for my own existence in the world. And that all of that is the way I understand home. And then I realized I also was a kid thinking, and I grew up in North and South Carolina thinking, I'm going to go West. I'm going to go live back in California. And I ended up in New York City, which was a, a completely different thing. But thinking about the way I understand home is just a place where there are pine trees. And I have found that in places all around the world, right? Um, but I've never really framed it in that in that way. And so I really appreciate you kind of shifting my thinking of home can also be about the landscapes that are there too and the feeling of that and being rooted in that. Mm. I'm wondering, since we all kind of have these experiences in North Carolina, what are some of the natural kind of processes or plants or species that bring up that feeling for you? Um, or are there any just, for me, it's, it is so now deeply rooted to pine trees that I look at them and I've spent a lot of time out in Hillsboro mm -hmm. and the, the longleaf and loblolly forest out there. And, um, Vic is down in Moore County, which is where we met, which has some of the oldest longleaf pines in the world. And I'm like that specifically for me is always going to be home. Um, but thinking about North Carolina through that lens of, are there any, any plants or, or animals or species that come to mind for you? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I feel like um, maybe it's just because I've, I've been working with it so much, but honestly, the kudzu really, it, it's funny for it to be um, a symbol of home when it is, um, yeah, does have this reputation as being like such an invader. But I think that there's something that maybe speaks to me a little bit about that too, kind of having grown up like as a kid moving, moving a lot and so always being the outsider. Um, kind of moving into a, um, you know, a school where I was uh, among, I, I felt like I like was the new kid and wasn't um, part of the, my, I didn't have like family roots um, in a place. So, uh, so yeah, and seeing those big drapes of kudzu coming south, I feel like is, um, is a little bit of a, a sense of homecoming. Um, and then I think a lot of like the uh, water birds that we have in North Carolina, herons and kingfishers. Um, I've been trying to go down to see the tundra swans in eastern North Carolina every winter for the past few years. And um, I grew up bird watching with my mom. So, um, so a lot of the birds that we have uh, definitely have a, their, their sight and their calls definitely uh, make me think of home. But it's an interesting thing. I mean, you know, I was born in Oregon, um, spent a lot of time uh, in the West in different places. And I think that sense of home is, uh, it can be something that you kind of carry in your pocket a little bit. And um, I think it's so important to wherever you are, uh, 
have the practice of paying really close attention to um, to the the natural rhythms and the bird, the the plants and animals that are um, there. And that's kind of how you find home wherever you are. It always has been for me of, of being able to, you know, in the prairie, look really closely and see some like familiar cricket or something or um, yeah, like for you, the pine trees being able to be in a new environment and see that uh, that silhouette of a pine tree. Like there's, uh, it's just such a good reminder that like, yeah, we're home wherever we are in a lot of ways because we're on the earth and the earth is, um, yeah, filled with plants that are reminders of um, where we come from. I think the core for me of being an artist is to learn how to pay close attention. Um, and that's also my folklore work is I think both are fields that they ask you to think critically and compassionately and to really notice the world around you and exist not just in it, but also with it. Um, the kudzu feels like such a great thing here. And I, I was actually gonna say when you were speaking about it earlier, especially with how kudzu is such a symbol of Southern culture as well. There's something really interesting with that in thinking about kudzu both being invasive, um, but also being very much rooted in Southern iconography. There was a great Bitter Southerner piece that actually just came out that a bunch of people sent me all about kudzu, which I have only read about halfway through it. It's been in a tab on my computer, but looking at kudzu as an invasive species, but also shifting and, and reframing our perception to that a little bit. It's really interesting for me to think about symbolism and iconographies both in relationship to place but also in relationship to landscape and the way in which we think of the south or culturally the south is thought of as such a monolith but when you actually drill down into the environment into the environmental iconographies of a place you start to realize just how different every part of the south is right of the coast of north carolina is so different from the piedmont which is so different from the mountains and that's just one state um, I know you've spent a little bit of time kind of working across the state and have done some work up at Penland, which I love Penland, so I'm really excited to hear that. But I think it might be, I'm looking at the time on our, our conversation, I, to go all the way back to how did you get involved in the creative practices and the crafts that you do and, and what was that process like? Because you do so many incredible things. And um, one thing I was thinking about as we've been talking is there's this idea that to be an artist is you get formal training with it and you go and you get an MFA and craft is often something that like you just kind of learn, um, whether it's through a workshop or someone who taught you, but it's passed down in different ways. And so I'd be interested to hear about your own approach to learning the skills that you now now teach and pass on um, and how you think about that in relationship to the larger conversation about art and craft. Yeah, so I've always been baking things um, and I got my undergrad degree in studio art. Um, I was doing mostly metalwork then. And then uh, I was living in Asheville and uh, I had started uh, throwing pots, doing pottery when I was a teenager. That was my first job was working in a pottery studio. Um, so I got involved with the ceramic studio in Asheville after college and then, um, and then was uh, accepted to the core fellowship program at Penland, which is a two-year work trade uh, program, um, and that's really where I like learned my bag of tricks. Um, <laughs> as I tell people, like uh, the structure is that you can take any class while you're there, um, and so I was kind of all over the place. Um, I got into making jewelry while I was there, and 
took a lot of metal classes, um, both small metals and then also blacksmithing and um, large scale metalwork, um, and did ceramics and um, uh, and woodworking. I kind of grew up doing woodworking projects with my dad as well. So I think it's just always been around, um, whether um, in my you know in my family um, with the people that I am around. I've always just been around a lot of. Uh, makers. Um, and then I've just continually kind of sought out uh, experiences where I'm, I'm learning new crafts. Um, and, you know, for a while, uh, I really felt like I needed to kind of, I was like, okay, Angela, it's great to like learn all these different things, but you got to choose and like focus in at some point. Um, <laughs> and I think that there is just, you know, in art as in craft as much as in the kind of general society there's so much emphasis on specialization and on focusing um and finding your kind of niche um career path and uh that doesn't really work for me and maybe doesn't work for a lot of people um i'm much more of a generalist and uh, and i really just like, love learning and love learning new ways of making things and and being able to then pass those on so um so I've just kind of continually sat at, sought out new teachers. Um, and uh, as I've been focusing more on basket weaving in the past few years, um, I've been seeking out basketry teachers, some of whom are continuing the work of traditional craft and are uh, very few and are some of the very few people who work with their particular uh, material, um, whether that's black ash basketry or white oak basketry. Um, there's very few people and very few young people who are still know how to manipulate those materials and harvest them and prepare them. Uh, so it feels important to me to be seeking out ways of learning those crafts um, and uh, teaching them and, and being able to pass them on. Um, and my, my heritage is Irish and English, and so it's also been important for me to seek out um, teachers who can uh, teach me willow basketry, which is a traditional um, uh, basketry style from Ireland and England. Um, so that's also been important to kind of try to find ways to connect my own uh, lineage with the, the crafts that I'm working with. So um, yeah, it's, it's always so exciting to learn new things and to find new ways to uh, connect with people and material and then now as I've been teaching more and kind of thinking about how to bring those new skills into my community uh, where I live is um, there's just so much work to be done <laughs> and it's kind of endlessly exciting to think about. Considering that we live in this world of kind of mass capitalist production and everything is now turning to Amazon and everything we do is online, does it feel almost radical to you in a way to be kind of returning to the source of making things or passing some of these traditions on? Or do you think about it in relationship to if we don't pass these things on, what happens to them, um, to the skills and knowledge? Yeah. Yeah. I would say both. I mean, I think I, you know, when I was in grad school, I was kind of making work that was theoretically about uh, the evils of Amazon and about globalized trade and uh, kind of pointing towards like a conversation around it. And then um, after leaving the academy, it kind of felt like 
what's actually like way more radical and way more um, real is to just engage in those uh, in like the slow production of of goods and to like find as many ways to opt out of the existing um, systems of of um, uh, the way that goods are sold and and moved around in our world. Um, there's just so much. Uh, so much invisible destruction and invisible, um, uh, like terrible labor situations that, um, that we just like don't see and therefore like don't have to think about. And I feel like it's very radical to try to remove yourself from those systems, um, and to encourage other people to remove themselves from those systems. So, um, so yeah, it does feel like, uh, it's really, it's harder to opt out in a lot of ways than it is to just kind of go along with, uh, with the ease and efficiency of buying something um, cheap uh, online. But um, I really do think it's important to um, uh, to try to, um, you know, both support people who are making things locally and to be more engaged in a local economy. And to just kind of understand the, um, um, yeah, the implications of buying things that come from the other side of the world. Um, I was doing this project for a while where I was trying to track where all of my um, purchases were coming from, and kept this kind of like spreadsheet of the of the countries that I, you know, so often you can't really tell um, where something is manufactured and all the different parts of it are manufactured, but, you know, you just go through a day of doing that. And, you know, it's not that like global trade is inherently a bad thing, but, um, but so many steps of it are invisible and therefore able to be, um, to, to be badly sourced for lack of a better way of putting it. But, um, yeah, it's it feels important to me to just be as um, uh, transparent as possible in what I'm surrounding myself with. I wonder if a good start for a lot of people with it is what we've been talking about, which is this kind of just level of consciousness and active paying attention. A good example is right at the beginning of this conversation, you mentioned that there is no machine that weaves um, or that could create a basket. And I would have never known that. And now I think I'm going to view every basket I see in any sort of home design store completely differently. And so I wonder if maybe a place to start for a lot of people is just to raise conscious awareness of, of where you're getting your objects and the way in which they're produced. And hopefully with that, you know, then it can lead to more down the line of I would love to never have to ever buy anything on Amazon ever again and, and to see more people able to do that too. I'm also thinking of even within that, I work in the publishing world and we talk about, you know, Amazon was kind of set up to be a rival to local publishers. And then now we don't even have like Barnes and Noble really anymore. Um, and so just that this one thing has become such an enemy for all of us. And I'm thinking about Bed Bath & Beyond closing of like Bed Bath & Beyond is not good, but it's maybe better than Amazon. And then within that, it's local makers and, and independent makers are getting impacted most of all. Um, or even something like Etsy, which was started in so many ways to support artists and craftspeople. And now I go on Etsy and everything is the same as it is on Amazon, where you don't know really where it's coming from or it, it feels very mass produced. So 
I don't know. It's a tough, it's a tough question and it's a tough place to be because I don't know where the best places are to even seek out um, local crafts people these days, unless you are going to craft fairs or you are living in a place where you have access to um, places like Peel Gallery is, is a place that comes to mind, but businesses that support and empower local artisans. And we're lucky in North Carolina, there, there is so much of that here, but I also know that is, that is not the case everywhere. So I don't really know where we go from here, mm-hmm. um, but maybe, maybe raising consciousness and awareness of these things is a place to start. Yeah, and I think also just um, you know empowering people. Uh, many people are already are uh, out of necessity, out of create. You know, people uh, find creative ways to make things and to source things, and so empowering people to like believe in their capacity to make the things that they uh, that they need, um, and to be able to fix things and mend things. I think, you know taking home ec out of public schools is like so awful in so many ways because it just uh, it disables people from from the ability to mend and um, and like create you know low cost solutions to uh, to the things that they need in their homes. Um, so I think like that kind of like empowerment of um, teaching people how to mend and fix things is super important as well. I make it a personal effort in every class I teach somehow to teach my students how to sew. Like we'll have a craft day and it's like, uh-huh. I, I did this last semester where I was like, okay, I'm going to teach you all to sew. I, I grew up thinking I was going to be a fashion designer and like making all my own clothes. I'm not very good at it, but I can, I can fix things. And so I taught them all how to fix a hole and sew on a button. And then I had other students bring in things they make. And so certain students were teaching crochet. And I had one student who does bonsai and came in and like taught everybody about bonsai and it was so cool and it was really incredible to see the way community was fostered through that and it's something I've been thinking about kind of at the back of my mind throughout this whole conversation is that when you are engaging in traditions of craft and working with people working with you're working with people um, and you're working in community and community can be fostered through that which in my mind is maybe why there's such a rise post pandemic that i think people really want community i found myself taking pottery classes coming out of the pandemic just to meet new people in a place where i didn't necessarily know anyone um i'm thinking about so much of what we do on this podcast is about art and community so i'd love to hear about the role community has served in your work as both a student and a teacher but kind of the way the arts community in North Carolina, how have you experienced it? Um, and what does it kind of look like or mean to you? Yeah, I mean, I feel like I'm still kind of getting to know it in our um, specific local location of Hillsboro and, and um, Chapel Hill and Durham. Um, uh, and it, mostly I've gotten to know people um, through teaching, um, you know, which I kind of started teaching workshops just because I, I needed to... Um, uh, to make some money <laughs> and uh, to support myself through uh, the kind of like um, strange grab bag of uh, skills that I have acquired. Um, and it's been really great to um, uh, to find so many people who are uh, may or may not call themselves artists, um, but who are really, you know, really value, see the value of making things and of um, having creativity as a daily part of their lives. Um, and, you know, I spend a lot of time in the mountains. I'm actually in the mountains right now, um, doing a residency at the John C. Campbell Folk School. Um, and so the Appalachian community of, um, 
of artisans and uh, and makers is kind of has its own uh, particular flavor, uh, which is so kind of steeped in tradition and um, and in like the the feeling of the mountains here. So um, I really appreciate that um, that community, and it it uh, fostered a lot of my own. Um, uh, desire to become a, a craftsperson early on when I moved to Asheville. Um, so I, yeah, I think it's a very kind of wide um, and expansive community of artists, but also farmers and musicians. And I think that there's um, a lot of overlap between different creative people and, and people who are just trying to live in a um a way that is a little bit alternative to the kind of dominant like idea of uh, getting a career and and just kind of like uh barreling down (laughs) life on your career path um so i've uh been really inspired by the um the variety of ways that i see people um living creatively whether that's through uh, whether that's as artists and craftspeople or as um, uh, in other ways. When you think about the community or the future of the community of craft and the role it plays in our world, what does that look like for you? I don't know. I mean, I try not to get too um, apocalyptic about it um, <laughs> when I think about it, but um, but I think that there's always going to be uh a, a real importance to being able to make things and, and fix things. Like, I don't think that um, that technology is going to take that away. Um, and so I think that there's just going to be a, kind of a, a morphine and uh, ever um, adapting way of, of blending technology and craft and, and tradition. Um, and I think that, uh, being like, we've been talking about being kind of like, uh, aware and paying attention to how the world is changing, uh, will kind of enable us as makers to respond in ways that are, um, both bringing that, this sense of history and our kind of awareness and understanding of, um, of historical ways of making things, um, into whatever, you know, situations we need to respond to in the future. I'm writing my master's thesis about social collapse and apocalypse and artistic response. So now I'm like, oh my gosh, I want to go down a whole rabbit hole of like craft versus survivalism and all of these things. Uh I'm realizing (laughs) that we are pretty much at our time, which is so crazy. And I definitely am going to try to get signed up for some of your workshops and keep an eye out on everything. And I look forward to seeing what you do in the community that you build with all of this in Orange County and beyond. And we will have to have a conversation about survival schools versus craft schools at some point. I would, I would absolutely love to hear your thoughts on it. Um, yeah, there's a lot of overlap, <laughs> I think. <laughs> there is a lot of overlap, but it is it is very odd how they draw to very different communities. Um, and maybe we can mm-hmm. unite them somehow. That's yeah. the long-term part of rural yeah. arts organizing. But Angela, thank you so much for being here and for just such a fascinating and interesting conversation and for everything you do. We do always end our podcasts with one final question and we leave it open to people however they want to take it. And that question is, what do you believe in? Thank you so much. It's been such a lovely conversation. Um, I believe that the 
world is really fundamentally a, a harmonious place. And, you know, just like we touched on earlier, I think that the uh, it's our kind of responsibility to try to find that harmony and be in alignment with that harmony. Um, and that comes uh, through paying close attention to natural rhythms and the um, the way that nature uh, mends itself and um, and is always evolving. Um, so yeah, I guess I believe in in paying attention. I could not agree more. <laughs> Thank you so much. For anyone who wants to follow your work or sign up for workshops or, or stay up to date, where can they find you? Flagmountain.studio is my website and also my Instagram. And we will link to all of that here. Angela, thank you so much. This is such a great conversation and I'm so excited to follow everything you do. Wherever you are in the world, have a good day, good night, be good, stay good. Mm